March, we did a uh, thing in the church where it was 31 days in the month of March, and for 31 days, we each, uh, those of you who joined us, we called it March to Wisdom, we each read through uh, one proverb a day for 31 days. And the last proverb, the way Proverbs ends, is uh, very, very cool. Proverbs 31, I'm going to start in verse 10. You can, it's not on the screen, you just follow along and listen if you want. It says, a wife, of, <clears throat> a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark and provides food for the family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do, no Many women do noble things, but you surpass them are. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Great, give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Three o'clock today, 18 years ago, Carol Grace Frash made either a wise or a foolish choice. You be the judge. <laughs> and said she'd join me on this journey. And uh, that passage was a passage I was praying for in a wife. In the first 18 years, Carol, you do pretty good. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for 18 years. So, <clears throat> If you take premarital counseling with me, you know that I am a sap. Um, and I, I do believe that you can actually grow in not only love, but you can grow an emotional love towards your spouse. And uh, I'm not one of those guys that thinks, oh, it's all over after the first year and all that kind of thing. Maybe I'm just a helpless romantic or whatever. And I'm, I'm not really romantic, but, but uh, I, do, I do feel that uh, that can continue. So those of you who are freshly married, ladies especially, give you those guys an elbow and say that they can continue to, to foster that kind of relationship. Out of this relationship came some boys two of which are not here this week, so I will slander them without any fear of replication. 
Boys are notorious. I got an email from a cousin of mine um, who, uh, she's hilarious. She sends me the greatest emails. And this, this particular one was called um, Sons Who Do Things That Make Their Parents Proud. So I just want to show you a few of the pictures that they sent here. Um, <laughs> that took me a few seconds to get that one there, huh? Go to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now the point of this, if there's actually a point, was little boys especially, oftentimes are they're very adventuresome. Those of you who have little boys, when you use the phrase, they're all boys, uh, these are the kind of things they get themselves into. <laughs> Not realizing the wrath that is going to come 0.6 seconds after that water hits his head. This is my favorite one, actually. <sighs> Now, can you not see that little six-year-old saying, I can do this. I can do this. Check this one out. Yep. <laughs> oh, dear. That is awful. We're right now in a study of the Gospel of John. And uh, we are right basically in the middle section right now. Uh, chapter 7, where Jesus is at a feast. And one of the things that hit me as I thought, about, I thought about those pictures and I thought about where we're at in this and what Jesus is going to say this week while he's at this feast, it's a radical statement that he's going to make. I think sometimes we just are like those little boys and we just think, oh, it's no big deal. We uh, don't really understand the power that we are tapping into. I think of that last little illustration where the little boy's got the butter knife and he's going to jam it in the... In the <laughs> I mean, what would you make you think of doing that? I don't know, but, but you know what's going to happen. That is going to present quite a shock in just a second. And my aim this morning is nothing more than to have us do that. I hope you're here this morning with your butter knife out as we look at John chapter 7. I hope, my aim is when Jesus makes this declaration, that it will land with you in such a way that the same thing as that little boy getting a shock coming out of that outlet. So open your Bibles up to John chapter 7. We're picking up in verse 25 while you're flipping there. Or you can look on the insert if you want. There's some little booklets of the Gospel of John still laying around. Those are yours to keep if you'd like. Um, while you're flipping there, I'll kind of catch up what happened. Jesus goes up to this feast. There are three main feasts in the Jewish year. This one's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Uh, booths excuse me. It happens at the time when the, uh, the harvest comes in or the first fruits of the harvest come in. And uh, they are going to be celebrating, um, excuse me, not the first fruits. This is the one, this is the Feast of Tabernacles where they celebrate the harvest time. So this is September or October of the year. This is when all the other crops would be harvested, off things off the vine especially. And so this is a big celebration in, in, in Jerusalem. Jesus goes there. But it's not until midway, halfway through the celebration, which lasts seven days. But on the eighth day, there's kind of a, they, people would hang around for another day and it would kind of be when they'd take down the booths and they had other things that they would do. So it's a little confusing to know if it's eight or seven days. Technically it's a seven day feast but it lasts eight days. Anyway, in the midpoint of that, Jesus begins to start to teach. People are amazed at his teaching. So much so that they start to, to say, wow, this guy is quite a teacher. He's, he's uh, someone we haven't heard him teach anything like that. And then they start to pick on him. And then Jesus comes back, if you remember from last week, Jesus says to them, 
Uh, I did one miracle, and he's referring to one the last time he was in Jerusalem in John chapter 5. He does a miracle. He heals a guy, a crippled man. He heals him, but he did it on the Sabbath, which is a day when the Jewish people say that no work should be done. They can't get over the fact that he did it on the Sabbath, so they discount the miracle. And Jesus is telling them, hey, listen, if you have a son and he's born on such a day that the day when he's supposed to be circumcised is the Sabbath, you forego the Sabbath and do the ritual. And you should. That's a fine thing. How much more if someone who's been crippled for, for all their life or for a significant number of years like this man, if we heal him, how does that not forego the Sabbath? I'm not here to replace the Sabbath. I'm just saying put it in the proper perspective. Then he says the phrase, stop Stop uh, making foolish choices and make a right judgment. That's what he says. And we're going to pick it up right after that at verse 25. I'm just going to read through the passage, make a couple comments, and then I, have, I want to look at this declaration that Jesus makes. In, he makes a huge one in verse uh, 30, 37 to 39. I want to look at that. So verse 25. At that point, right after he says that, some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Now, so there's these crowds, this confusion happening. There's these crowds at the feast. And they're saying, wait a minute, Jesus is teaching publicly and they're not really arresting him so maybe they think he's okay. But wait a minute, we know where this guy comes from. We're not supposed to know where he comes from. And that's an interesting thing. We're actually going to see that contradicted later. Uh, some rabbis at that time taught that the Christ would appear. He would just appear. He'd be flesh and blood, but he would just appear. No one know, would know where he came from. And that's where the crowds are getting this concept. Others, rightfully, taught that the, the Christ would come from Bethlehem. We'll see that even in a little while. Okay, verse uh, 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes! You know me, and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. Man, this is radical stuff. Jesus is saying, hey, you, you know where I'm from. And he doesn't correct their wrong thinking. He uses that as a springboard master teacher that Jesus is to say, think about this right now for a second. Here we are at the temple. The place where you come to meet God. Here we are, not only at the temple, <clears throat> we're at the temple on one of the days, huge feasts, when, when uh, you're, you come here and you're singing songs and you're reciting psalms and you're doing all kinds of praying, you're doing all sorts of things so that you can honor God. Guess what? I'm standing right here and you're missing it. Whenever I visit a church, and I try to visit churches on my, on my weeks off, I sometimes don't care for the worship style. And I sometimes don't care for the preaching style. But the word I think that I try to get myself is this, into is, you know what, I'm not really here to enjoy the worship style. I hope they sing the songs I like. I hope he preaches in a way that I can hear. I hope he's not boring, whatever. I'm here to meet God. 
And if I were to come and dismiss God because, oh, the sermon was kind of boring, oh, they read liturgy and I hate reading liturgy or whatever, and miss God, I've missed everything. And that's what these people are doing right here. Verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. There's this struggle. Picture this. You've got these crowds. He's just teaching. And, and people are coming and they're going to seize him. Looks like the crowds at this point, not the religious rulers, they're, they're, they're angry with him. How dare you say we're not honoring God? How dare you say that these, what we're doing here is not right? We're going to seize you. That's a good thing to do in a church. The guy bores you during a sermon? Go up and rush him. No. No, don't. <laughs> and that's what they do. Now, I wish, in my mind's eye, I wish I could see how this plays out. I see it in one of two ways. One is Jesus is really slippery. And he moves fast, you know? He's kind of like moving through the crowd. And people are trying to, and they're like, like the Keystone Cops, you know, diving and missing him and grabbing air and they can't get anything. That's one scene. The other scene, I think, is the cool Jesus thing where people come up to him and there's like this force field and he just kind of walks. And nobody can, they just kind of bounce off him. I don't know what happened here, but it says, <laughs> there's this crowd, but no one can lay a hand on him because his time has not yet come. I'd hate to make this movie because I don't know which way... It went. Somehow I know that they tried to get him. They couldn't. It wasn't his time. And there's that phrase again. His time had not yet come. Verse 31. Still, in spite of all this, this craziness that's happening, it's just utter confusion. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes... Will he do more miraculous signs than this man? I think implicit that means, so he must be the Christ. And all this other, even what, no matter what other people are thinking, I'm going to still trust in him. Look at how the religious rulers respond. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they send temple guards to arrest him. We're going to see what happens next week with that whole situation. Jesus answered him in verse 33. I'm with you for only a short time and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Remember, this is September, October. If the year's right, it's 32 AD. If we have our calendar correct, it's 32 AD. He's going to uh, come back to Jerusalem. He's never really going to leave Jerusalem now. He's going to kind of stay in the outskirts of it for the rest of this time. And then, um, if my math is right, it's about six, seven months, March, April 33, is when he's going to be crucified. He's just there for about six more months. He says, shortly I'm going to be gone. The Jews reply to that, Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Looks to me about three, or matters how you divide the last one, could be four different questions there. And Jesus is not going to answer those questions. There's no answer. We see in the next verse, he's, he's so totally, probably a totally different day. Verse 37 is going to shift us to a new day. Jesus doesn't answer these questions. 
I am convinced that Jesus Christ always answers honest questions. And hope, man, it's one of our big phrases. If you came here this morning, and many of you did, wondering if God's even there, or wondering who Christ is, or wondering if the Bible's reliable, or wondering what it means to be a Christian, or wondering what it means if you gave Jesus that part of your life. Jesus, what if I gave you that part of my life that I've been holding back on? What if I gave that to you? You have those questions. And if it's an honest question, you can expect an answer. In Scripture, every time Jesus comes and gives, or excuse me, people come to Jesus and they give honest heartfelt, I'm waiting for an answer and I will follow it answer, or questions, Jesus gives an answer. So Jesus loves what we like to call here at Hope, BQs, big questions. I got a big question I need to answer for. Jesus doesn't answer AQs, avoiding questions. Oh yeah? You know everything? Alright, what's the capital of Somalia? <laughs> or whatever. The, that's the best I got here, sorry. The, just tricksy questions. Ah, I got a coin. On this coin it says to Caesar. Should I give the money to the temple or to Caesar? Huh, Jesus? Now, those kind of questions, you get nothing. Or you get a, a, you get a question back. Jesus doesn't answer those. And he's not going to answer these. Now, Jesus is going to make all this is kind of, I think, all this is kind of um, a setting for Jesus giving the declaration. I'm just going to read it through. We're going to come back to it. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom... Those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Look at how they respond to this. Verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. All right, he's going to make a declaration. I'm going to come to that in just a minute. But I want you to feel the context of the declaration. Otherwise, I don't feel like it has the weight that it should. Remember, remember the context here. First of all, there's the crowds. And they are all over the place. That did not come out very good. All right, anyway, there's a bunch of people there. It's nighttime. There you go. It's nighttime with the crowds. Um, anyway, and these crowds are there. And there's confusion about Jesus, all right? Then there's the, the religious rulers. They're also at nighttime. All right, that's for whatever reason, that is not working well. But the religious rulers have come. There's this tension. There's pressure. It's a dangerous place for Jesus to be in Jerusalem and in the temple where he's teaching. It's dangerous. There's another element. Comes with um, people and there's confusion and there's fear, and there's division of opinions about Jesus. And lastly, comes these people who have all these questions. Not honest questions, but avoidance questions. In all that context, being very hazardous, that's when Jesus makes the declaration. Go ahead to the next one. On the last and greatest day of the feast, so most people think it's during the solemn assembly on the, the, the seventh day, could be the eighth day, though, because that's another very important day. On the last day, he stands up 
and says in a loud voice, you know how it is when somebody says, like, they're kind of freaky. You ever been in an audience where they say, for instance, uh, Chris Anderson, we're just, uh, Chris, stand up for a minute. Say something, just, just say something loud. There you go. So I knew I could pick Chris. We didn't talk ahead of time. And I'm glad because, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Now, that's what it would have been like. I mean, here, I, you know, something else is going on, and Chris just stands up and says something. You ever been in a situation like that? It's kind of freaky, okay? It's kind of weird. It's kind of like weird. That's not the way we do things, and this guy just stands up. Now this guy stands up and happens to say, hey, if anybody's thirsty, and you're all thinking, yeah, we're all kind of thirsty. Hey, if anybody's thirsty, come on over to me and get a drink. They're thinking, oh, maybe he's selling something. He goes on then. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. Whew. Okay, now it goes from this guy's vending to this guy's psycho, right? It's kind of an un unbalanced person standing up in the middle of a crowd. It's kind of weird. And he says this, streams of living water will flow from you. Now, in order to understand that even better, is you've got to understand what happened every day of this feast. Every day, they would go down to the, one of the famous pools, the, the, spool, the pool of Siloam, and they would get, a, they'd have a big solemn processional. They would get a, a pitcher of water. They would bring it back in a solemn assembly. And they would pour it on the altar, symbolizing they were in need of God to provide water for their souls and water for their land. Okay, got that? So when, when Jesus does this, it's during the last day when it's the biggest ceremony regarding water and also light. And we're going to find out he's going to talk about light in John chapter 8. Okay, so, so, uh, or nine, eight, nine, later. All right, but he's pouring his water out. It's a symbol they're very aware of. So when he says that, this is a claim to deity, folks. Saying, I am. Come to me. I'm the one who gives water. And he means this. He says, by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This last week, I was in Dallas, and I'm part of this group of church planters. I'm actually helping a church on the street, Bethlehem Baptist, and some of their church planting. There are 12 churches. All these churches are very aggressive in starting new churches around the country. And... It's in Dallas, so, you know, bigger's better or whatever. And there's very important people around. One, I even got to meet someone. I'll sh share about them in just a minute. The guy who produced uh, The Lion, the Witcher, and the Wardrobe, the producer of that movie. And there's all these important people. And I was around this guy and I thought, man, what an important guy. You know, that's an, he's an important person. You ever stop to think about the fact that if you know Jesus Christ personally, the God of the universe resides in you. And every day, you have conversations with the God of the universe. And I'm not trying to downplay this person. I think he's an important person. Streams of living water, butter knife into the outlet, will, 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 will spew out of you. 
That's what you have. That's what your resource is. Don't miss it. Don't pretend the outlet isn't there. I think a lot of times we come either to church or to Bible studies or prayer time thinking, God, if you just solve this problem, instead of saying, God, the God who does everything, you can do this in a heartbeat. Do, do a miracle, God. We're waiting on it. See the difference? Crowd response, there's division about Jesus all over the map. Some believe, some completely disbelieve and use excuses about geography to dismiss Jesus. Now, let me close this morning by introducing to you a couple people of history. I, I shared with you that I got a chance to meet uh, uh, a guy and he shared with us, our group, about 60 of us, um, about being a producer and what, what his goals are as a Christian in Hollywood, what he's trying to do. And he's trying to get movies that make people think. So if Walden is the, I'm not trying to, Walden is the name of the company and Walden Media and they do all these kind of different movies that make people think. But the movie that he really wanted to do and is going to come out on the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade in England is a movie on William Wilberforce. Now, if you don't know anything about William Wilberforce, um, here's a picture of him. He lived from 1759 to 1833. William Wilberforce, um, growing up, came from, had Christian roots. His father died when he was eight. And so he was sent uh, to uh, live in a place called Wimbledon, where Wimbledon actually is with his aunt. She was a staunch Methodist. Now, at those times, you've got to understand, Methodism was new. John Wesley was on the scene, and this whole, this whole uprising of the methods was basically spiritual disciplines to help you follow Christ. That's where the whole word Methodist comes from. And Methodism was was spreading like rampant, and everybody hated it if, you, if you weren't a Methodist. So his mother found out that he was getting influenced by this, by this aunt with Methodism, so uh, she pulled him out of it, pulled him out of the home. At that time, when he was a young boy, he got to meet another man who you're going to meet in just a minute, a man by the name of, of John Newton. So anyway, he, she took him out of that home, and she put him in a private school. Later on, years later, while taking a, a vacation on the continent, he began reading a book called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. For some reason, this book got a hold of, of um, his life in such a way that he started to develop inner convictions about how he should be living towards Christ. And it was at that moment when he decided to move from living a life of, of uh, just for his own interests into a life that would be for Christ. He was converted. Trouble was, was that he was in politics. And he decided, I'm going to leave politics. And he happened to meet up again with John Newton, a man I'm going to introduce you in just a minute. And, and, and John Newton, he said, should I leave politics? And he says, it seems to me that God has put you there for a reason. Live for Christ, for the betterment of, of society. And so William Wilberforce, a man who I'm going to, I'm going to, I hope this is a good movie. They showed us an eight-minute preview. Oh, my gosh. T 
tears rolling down my eyes. This is going to be a powerful movie. If you're all a fan of history uh, and, and you're all a fan of what Christ can do in people's lives for betterment of society, he made this phrase, God has put before me two great objects, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Manners was a way of saying, kind of like we use the word, but it meant the, the, the society norms, the way that society went about doing things, how people were behaving in society. And he said, I want, to, I want to change that for the glory of God. Now, the man who was heavily influential in Wilberforce's life was a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton is probably best known as the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. That's probably how he's best known. But you've got to understand the whole story before that hymn makes any sense at all. John Newton was born in 1725. Again, he had um, a, a, a family that grew up in a, in a Christian home. His mother died at an early age of his life. At, at uh, age of 11, he headed out to sea with his father. And then he became just completely vile. Listen to this description of him. Sailors were not noted for the refinement of their manners, but Newton had a reputation for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, which even shocked many a sailor. He was known as the great blasphemer. Now, that's pretty good to, to like make, make sailors blush. You know I mean? This, is, this, was, this guy was over the edge. He was vile. He found out that he could make a lot of money in the slave trade. So he became a slave trader. Started out small, ended up running his own ship. So he's got a ship. He's a captain of a ship. He's, he's uh, piloting this ship on May 10th, 1748. And he gets caught in the middle of a massive storm out at sea. And his mind starts to think, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And from when he was a young child, he remembered this proverb. Proverbs 1, verses uh, 21 to 30, 24 to 31. And I'm just going to quote it in the King James as he was thinking of it. Because I have called and ye refused, ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also laughed at your calamity. This is God speaking. I will mock when you, your fear cometh when your fear cometh as dissolution and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. So John Newton's thinking this, oh my gosh, I brought this on myself. I've done all this stuff. God is actually laughing at me right now because I, I completely have repudiated him. I've pushed him away. And he screams out for God, God, if at all possible, save me from this. And guess what happens? He gets saved in more ways than one. He gets saved from the storm, and John Newton's life completely flips around. Completely flips around. And he pens probably one of the most famous quotes in all of, the, of all the hymns, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was a wretch. He was the most vile person you can imagine. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. At the end of this eight-minute video clip, 
they show, they show at the end of, of John Newton's life. At the end of his life, and he's with, in this case they're saying he's saying it to Wilberforce. I don't know if that's historically accurate or not. But John Newton is quoted as saying this when he's 82 years old. He said, um, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. But that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Man, I hope I get to be 82, and that's the two things I remember. These are two men in the course of history who've allowed the streams of living water to change them. These are two men who took their butter knife and stuck it in the outlet of God. And we're different. And we're different as a society. There's close to 300 people in this room. What, what if we decided that we were going to be people who are going to stick our butter knives in the outlet. So I'm not going to live with a mediocre life. I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to waste my life. I'm going to live my life by allowing Jesus Christ. I'm going to drink from him deeply and those streams to come out and I'm going to be a, make a difference in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, our souls long for, our parched souls long to be quenched. So Lord Jesus Christ, would you come even now, even in this room, would you come, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit, would you fill us up in such a way that, that, that we're different, every day we're different. I think of Wilberforce for 18 years being mocked for putting on, on Parliament's desk year after year after year a bill that will abolish the slave trade. And finally it came true after 18 years. Three days before his death, slavery is abolished. God, you can make a difference in, in, in one person whose heart is fully committed to you. So Lord God, that's what we're asking for this morning. That in this room we'd be people who drink deeply and walk in ways that make a difference. Lord Jesus, I pray for people in this room who maybe for the first time in their lives, they feel like John Newton on the middle of that ocean, feeling like they've wandered so far away there's no way possible. There's no way possible for them. Lord God, I just ask that you'd let them know that you delight in the vile coming home. That you delight with open arms, you welcome them. The people who are nailing you to the cross, you delighted in giving them an, an honest welcome. So Lord God, I pray that we would not just look at the welcome in it and think, isn't that great? But this morning we would say, yes, Jesus. Wherever we're at, whether we've come years ago to a relationship with you, that this morning we would come and leap into your arms. Jesus Christ, each one of us longs to sense and to feel the power which, with which you have that can make, those, make our lives feel like there's streams coming out of it. God, just do that. 
overcome situations in our lives, whatever they may be. So God, as we close in these last two songs, would you have our hearts be committed to you to make new commitments and then bring things to you which only you can solve. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.